Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the challenges of finding a peaceful way out of the brinkmanship in Ukraine before a major war in Europe erupts. With a political atmosphere in which the majority of Americans blame Putin for the current crisis but don't want a war with Russia, and the majority of the Russian people blame the U.S., who they see as an aggressor, we'll speak with Stephen Wertheim, a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II. He joins us to discuss his article at Foreign Policy with Putin, Biden should channel his inner realist, and whether Kiev can be persuaded to accept the Minsk II agreement that will give Putin political leverage to permanently weaken Ukraine, or the West will call Putin's bluff and let him suffer the consequences of isolation and boycott as a result of the carnage and destruction a war will bring. Then with the Federalist hosting former Vice President Pence on Friday, who made news, then was followed by Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch, who spoke in secret to the same group that chose and funded him with dark money. We will examine the shadow network behind the right-wing takeover of America underway at school boards, election boards, state houses, and in support of the Stop the Steal lie and the insurrectionists plotting a comeback. Joining us is Ann Nelson, who teaches journalism and public affairs at Columbia University, whose latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. Then finally, with the Super Bowl a week away, at a time when the sleazy secrets and unsportsmanlike conduct of the NFL are being exposed, we will get an assessment from Robert Lipsight, a long-time sports writer and the jock culture correspondent for Tom Dispatch, on whether this organization, rife with corruption, sexual harassment and racism, can be reformed like the NBA has. He was previously a correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning and for the NBC Nightly News, as well as a columnist for the New York Times and ombudsman for ESPN. And his most recent book is his memoir, an accidental sports writer. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Stephen Wertheim, who is a senior fellow at the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He is the author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II, and he has an article at Foreign Policy, With Putin, Biden Should Channel His Inner Realist. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Wertheim. Good to be back with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Stephen, and we have a, a certain symmetry here, a rather deadly one at that, where... The majority of the American people, the pundits, the commentators, etc., the politicians, blame Russia for what's happening in Ukraine or what is about to happen. 
at least that's what President Biden suggested, <clears throat> that there be a war sometime this month. And on the other side, on the Russian side, the majority of the Russian people believe that it's all America's fault. So how do you break that impasse? Well, it's going to take really serious diplomacy. And the Biden administration has uh, pursued a diplomatic path, even as it's tempered expectations about what might be possible. Russia, at the beginning of its military buildup outside of Ukraine, uh, made some, um, let's say, perhaps Hail Mary demands of the United States and the West. Uh, that raised suspicion that perhaps Russia was just looking uh, to for an excuse to invade and wasn't serious. But nevertheless, uh, that can't be noted in advance. And the United States has been engaging in talks uh, over a number of issues that are of concern to Russia. So we don't yet know what Vladimir Putin uh, will do. Uh, but I am pretty pessimistic because I think uh, a diplomatic uh, compromise would be very difficult to work out. And I'm not sure that the Biden administration is putting quite everything on the table that would be necessary to to reach it. Well, your article at Foreign Policy with Putin, Biden should channel his inner realists, suggests that Biden is torn between the liberal internationalists on one side and the realists on the other. Yeah, both of these impulses are present in him, himself, and in his administration. Uh, Biden, when he talks about the crisis, he talks, though, in a more realist way than uh, I think most of his advisors. Uh, he actually, in his press conference a few weeks ago, uh, talked about how uh, Putin is still making up his mind. He suggested that Putin was a somewhat rational individual who could weigh the costs and benefits for Russia uh, of alternative courses of action. And he said that he was trying to shape uh, Vladimir Putin's choice by, on the one hand, threatening serious economic sanctions should Putin order a, another invasion of Ukraine uh, and other punishments, but on the other hand, uh, was uh, willing to uh, address uh, some of Russia's stated concerns uh, if uh, there was de-escalation by Russia. Well, it's my understanding that even though what Biden says to the world and to the United States audience is sometimes, you know, for these deploying troops and sending arms, etc. So obviously nobody in this country or in Russia wants a war because of the nuclear arsenals on both sides. So he's certainly being careful not to suggest that there's any way we want to go to war with Russia, although... On the Russian side, their propaganda indicates that the Americans are putting weapons and strategic weapons, nuclear weapons, into Ukraine, which is obviously a little overheated. It's my understanding, though, that that Jake Sullivan is putting a lot of pressure on Zelensky, on the on the government of uh, Ukraine, to go back to the Minsk agreement, which they pulled out of because it's it's largely one-sided. So, is there anything to work with there? Because, in a sense. Putin could end up with a political victory, uh, which would be, which would mean if you implement the Minsk Agreement as it was signed, he would essentially have a veto power over the, the Rada, the parliament in Ukraine, which would then paralyze the country. So obviously that would be a preferable outcome for him because a military option is fraught with dangers. 
Right. Yeah, I think there are really two um, key things that uh, are would be necessary for the United States uh, and its allies on the one hand and, and Russia on the other to reach some kind of an agreement on in order to avoid uh, an armed, another armed conflict. One would be NATO expansion. And Russia's asked for a formal guarantee that uh, NATO will close its door to Ukraine permanently. That is very unlikely to happen. But the United States is part of NATO. And if the United States does not favor uh, Ukraine's membership in NATO, uh, then Ukraine cannot become a member in NATO. And actually, the United States doesn't favor Ukraine's membership. Uh, but still wants to insist that it's a possibility. I think that the administration, as Biden indicated with his comments, might be willing to go further to make a more definitive statement uh, that might be satisfactory to Russia. But the other issue is just what you're pointing to, the status of the, the separatist conflict in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass. And I think for Putin, he uh, likely understands that he made a blunder in 2014 by backing separatists there. He was hoping to gain more uh, leverage on Ukraine to keep it from entering a Western orbit. Uh, but what he's done so far uh, has achieved the opposite effect. It has made the rest of Ukraine uh, more pro-Western, uh, more interested in joining NATO, for example, and the Minsk agreements, which might have turned uh, Putin's gamble into something of a success, have not been implemented. And the key provision there is that it would require Ukraine uh, to give uh, autonomy to those two provinces in the east rather than effectively keep them out of the Ukrainian uh, political system. Uh, and so I think that issue would have to be addressed. And what's most difficult for the United States uh, politically uh, would be to put pressure on Kiev to uh, have Kiev uh, undertake uh, its obligations under the, the Minsk II protocol. Is that something that, first of all, the government in Kiev uh, is even willing to do? Unknown. And if the Biden administration really pressured Kiev to take that kind of action in the face of uh, Russia's aggressive threats, uh, it would uh, raise criticism on Capitol Hill for sure. And again, I'm speaking with Stephen Wertheim, who is a senior fellow at the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's the author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy in World War II, and has an article at Foreign Policy with Putin. Biden should channel his inner realist. So, Stephen, it's always seemed that what you're trying to do to navigate, to avoid war, you're trying to navigate between Russia's security concerns and the desire on the part of the peoples in the former Soviet Union and the Eastern Europe, former Warsaw Pact countries, to have the rule of law and, and democracy. And unfortunately, Putin offers gangster government, as he did under Yanukovych in Ukraine, who they threw out, as he installed in Crimea, a bunch of gangsters, and as he is now doing military maneuvers with Belarus, with the gangster family Lukashenko. So how do you navigate between those two things? I mean, it seems to me that the mistake is 
NATO expansion eastward instead of EU expansion eastward. I agree with you. And what's happened is that the expansion of NATO and of the EU and of democracy have all come to be conflated, both in the mind of Vladimir Putin, but also in reality. All these things have gone together over the last several decades. So it's really hard for us analytically to tease out exactly what Russia is uh, so objecting to. You know, is it the example of democracy in Ukraine or elsewhere? Is it EU expansion, which was the trigger for uh, the uh, events of uh, 2014? Uh, is it NATO expansion, which is what the Kremlin tends to emphasize? I think the bottom line is all these things have blended together in reality. And so the overall issue is now a sense that uh, the world is dividing into blocks. Everything is kind of running together. And Russia would like to insist that at least the former Soviet countries, with the exception of the Baltic republics that are already in NATO, should not be part of uh, the, the West. They should not have a close alignment with the West that would preclude the influence and engagement of Russia in those countries. Now, maybe that at this point, Putin wants more. He actually wants to control in large part uh, the politics of those countries. And he's not even willing to accept some kind of neutrality. But uh, if we are going to reach some kind of agreement, uh, it would have to be to respect a kind of mutual neutrality uh, in which both sides can have engagement in a country like Ukraine without one side completely dominating uh, over the other. And so that's the hope that uh, that I think the Biden administration is is still uh, holding out in part without being credulous about uh, the darker possibilities. Well, unfortunately, of course, the two sides in this have vastly different agreements and visions of what the um, history is. They don't agree on history at all, particularly over the so-called James Baker conversation with Gorbachev, where he said NATO wouldn't, we floated the idea of NATO not moving one inch eastward, and that's become kind of bedrock in Putin's mind. I think a better example, I think, in many ways, I've always thought that George Kennan was one of the wisest American diplomats ever, in 1997, when NATO decided to admit Poland, Czech Republic, and Hungary, George Kennan said in, in an interview with the New York Times' Thomas Friedman that this would be a disastrous move. This would infuriate the Russians and eventually bring about a new Cold War. Well, he's being proven right, isn't he? I'm afraid so. Um, the level of antagonism that currently exists between the West and Russia was predictable and predicted. I don't think it took somebody of Kennan's uh, stature and insight uh, to uh, understand that a military alliance that historically had been aimed at Russia or the Soviet Union would continue to look threatening to Moscow. And so expanding it uh, drastically uh, up to uh, Russia's borders uh, would likely uh, create antagonism or harden any antagonism that might uh, already have existed anyway. 
and that's not to excuse, of course, uh, Russian aggression against independent sovereign countries. But we have to understand our own policy mistakes in order to grapple with the way forward. Uh, you know, in 2003, you know, a lot of people had nothing nice to say about uh, Saddam Hussein, but also thought it would be a big mistake uh, to invade Iraq. Uh, and we've come to see that as a disastrous policy decision. I don't think NATO expansion was on quite the same order as, as that, but it was a mistake. And a particular mistake occurred in 2008 when George W. Bush pressured other NATO allies to issue a pledge in, that uh, Ukraine and Georgia uh, will, one, will become members of NATO, even as uh, NATO was unwilling to grant those countries what's called a membership action plan, uh, which is part of the process uh, to actually become members of NATO. So the NATO allies were really unserious about admitting Ukraine and uh, Georgia into NATO, but nevertheless made a formal pledge that expressed certainty that they will become members of NATO. Uh, it was completely incoherent. Uh, it did help to lead up to the events uh, of the Russian-Georgian War uh, later in 2008. And unfortunately, you know, at a minimum, it gives Vladimir Putin a perfect whipping boy uh, to take back to his domestic audience to say, look how threatened we are by the West and look at what they're planning to do with Ukraine, even if it's also true that since 2008, uh, Ukraine has not come very far uh, on the path toward actual membership in NATO. So just in closing then, Stephen Wertheim, trying to figure out a way out of this, given both sides different versions of history and both sides, the American people and its politicians and commentators blaming Russia and on the Russian side, the Russian people through Putin's media are blaming America. And you mentioned earlier that obviously Putin's actions in, in the Donbass have backfired, that the Ukrainian people who used to have this kind of fraternal relationship with the Russians now are willing to fight. And in fact, they may even in many cases hate the Russians at this point. So that is hardly an achievement. So are we left with the possibility that either on the one hand, you make a deal over Minsk II, which would be very hard for the Ukrainians to swallow to avoid war, or would Putin understand that if he does go to war, he's going to be much worse off than he is now with how much things have backfired on him in Ukraine? You know, the Nord Stream 2 will be cancelled. He'll lose his oil and gas market to the east. It'll hurt the Europeans for a while. Biden actually was talking to the Qatari emir the other day. So Qatar and the US will step up their exports into, of LNG. It'll be a catastrophe for Russia. So I'm just wondering whether he's willing to go that far and whether the hawks on our side are basically calling his bluff and are prepared to have a war which, of course, the Ukrainian people will be the main casualties. I think the hawks, uh, most of the hawks in the United States are not willing to go to war or they're not saying they're willing to go to war in Ukraine uh, because they recognize Ukraine is very important to Russia. And the United States does not have uh, many interests 
in Ukraine. Ukraine isn't uh, a, a treaty ally. So the United States has no obligation to defend Ukraine. Um, but I think they are ambivalent because they would like to stop Russia through through the most difficult means that would be necessary, given how aggressive they see uh, Russian intentions. It's going to be very difficult to find our way out of the current crisis, even if there's de-escalation, it will, uh, you know, continue to be uh, understood that Russia had threatened uh, aggression against Ukraine, further aggression against Ukraine. And I think uh, the increased militarization in Eastern Europe um, is the likely result any way this crisis is resolved, short of some bold agreements uh, by both sides to take reciprocal measures uh, that will uh, promote arms control uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, so that's what would be the best thing. Um, but it's going to be a, a process. I will say that I think President Biden uh, has articulated a, a worldview and a view of Vladimir Putin uh, that could, could succeed in building a different kind of relationship with Russia over time. Uh, he has referred to the relationship as being all business. He says it's not about trust. He clearly views Vladimir Putin as a bad guy. I believe Biden called him a thug earlier in his presidency. So that's not the issue. Uh, but he says this is about trying to find ways that both sides can satisfy their mutual interest instead of descending further down this path of zero sum interaction that produces a negative sum result. In other words, everybody loses. And I think Biden has got to continue with that approach in the hopes that uh, there might just be a willingness uh, in the Kremlin, uh, dim as it may seem, uh, to go down that path. But at the same time, Biden is going to have to get over certain um, obstacles. He's going to have to get past domestic politics, where there's an appetite in Capitol Hill just to say how bad Russia is and how bad Putin is. Uh, at any moment by members of both parties, uh, no matter what happens. Uh, that's going to be an obstacle for him. And then he's going to have to take, um, I think, different approaches uh, on some issues, continuing to talk about, uh, you know, Ukraine's inalienable right to um, choose its alliances uh, would be an obstacle to forging a deal. Uh, that's a really a minor right in the scheme of international politics. Sure, Ukraine has a right to ask to join NATO, but it doesn't have a right to join NATO. That's a decision made by the members of NATO, and all of them have to be unanimous in order to admit new members. And that's really not going to happen. So if standing by that very abstract and, in this case, empty ideal is what uh, fails to allow diplomacy to succeed and what creates a war, that would be uh, incredibly uh, tragic and not smart. Well, Stephen Wertheimer, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Always good to talk with you. Well, thank you, Stephen. Again, I've been speaking with Stephen Wertheimer, who's a senior fellow at the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's the author of Tomorrow of the World, The Birth of U.S. Supremacy in World War II, and he has an article at Foreign Policy with Putin, Biden should channel his inner realist. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the shadow network behind the right-wing takeover of America that's underway. Come, 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anne Nelson, who teaches journalism and public affairs at Columbia University. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground and the Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, a New York Times book review, Editor's Choice, and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris. And her latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anne Nelson. Thank you, Ian. So speaking of the shadow networks, um, the Federal Society, who uh, Leonard Leo was largely the head of, uh, he's managed to get five of the justices, he handpicked them and has got them onto the Supreme Court. And after Mike Pence made his speech to the Federalist Society just a, a couple of days ago, at which he re- refuted Trump's claim that he, that Pence could have uh, awarded the election to uh, Trump instead of Biden, he basically, for the first time ever, stood up to Trump. And then, of course, Trump has immediately come out with the abuse that calling Pence an automatic conveyor belt for old crow Mitch McConnell. But I think what's been lost in the coverage of this uh, keynote speech of of Mike Pence's at the Federal Society was just after, after he made that speech, they went into a closed session, closed to the press, with another keynote speaker, the Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch. And he he was speaking to the very people who got him on the Supreme Court, and the press are absolutely shut out. And we know that the Judicial Crisis Network, financial network run by by Leo, was was actually one of the ways that he got all three of Trump's appointees, on, not to mention the other two, on the court. So my sense is that this is just a part of a broader shadow network of money that you've written about and are they behind all of the political moves underway now Uh, not necessarily the one sort of network but maybe some kind of octopus of networks financing the insurrectionists financing the stop the steal financing the takeover of school boards financing the taking over of election boards etc so what's your sense of how coordinated this all is well, the way I look at it is that you know, many of the people you just mentioned, uh, including Mike Pence and including uh, Leonard Leo, are members of something called the Council for National Policy, which I guess my book Shatter Network is the first and so far the only book on the subject, even though it's been working in the shadows for 40 years. And it's a coordinating body. So I don't see the issue so much as direct financing, although a lot of that has happened through the DeVos family, as in Betsy DeVos, as well as the Bradley Foundation, another major player in this group, and lots and lots of fossil fuel interests were heavily involved, especially the Koch brothers' empire. But really, there's a lot of their success is based on their skill in coordination. So the Federal Society was certainly a major player in Trump's selection for the Supreme Court and many, many other uh, seats on federal courts on the other two levels. But they were working with Heritage Action, which is run by another member of the CNP, 
and they were working with the National Rifle Association, and Wayne LaPierre is a longtime member of the CNP. They access the funding. They have the, 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 the ground troops to do canvassing in elections. They've got media properties like uh, Salem Media, which has content going to thousands of radio stations across the country. Some of them fundamentalist Christian, some of them, you know, what their Patriots so-called network, which is kind of blue collar anti-immigrant uh, language and, and right wing talk radio. So they're able to coordinate very closely across a number of platforms. And now they've had a huge operation in terms of digital platforms and social media initiatives. So they target projects and states that advance their cause. They work together with the level of coordination that we have not seen uh, in the Democratic Party in any way. And let me emphasize this, we have not seen in the traditional Republican Party because Republican moderates have been mercilessly purged. So the courts are just one lever for coming to power. They also are uh, very set on taking Congress in November. And Mike Pence might be their ace in the hole for the 2024 presidential elections. Well, indeed, talking about purging the GOP, the RNC, the Republican National Committee, just met in Salt Lake City and they purged Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger which obviously Mitt Romney objected to, but they called the uh, the insurrectionists uh, from January the 6th, they described that as legitimate political discourse. So we do have a problem, but I have a real problem with Gorsuch. The idea that he's speaking in private to the people that put him on the court and he won't let us know what the hell he was talking about. That seems to be the height of arrogance. And so, certainly there's no pretending that he's a neutral jurist, is there? Well, uh, really, with all of these Trump appointees to the court, there have been a lot of problematic issues. We've had a spate of uh, coverage of Ginny Thomas, uh, especially with Jane Mayer's brilliant piece in The New Yorker. Ginny Thomas is a board member for CNP Action, Council for National Policy's lobbying arm. And now recently, just just uh, I believe yesterday, correspondence came out talking about her brokering meetings between Thomas and people involved in, in political, well, DeSantis in particular. So what we have here is a flagrant violation of norms. And the response has been, well, it's not against the law. And it's and, and then the response is, well, it's such a flagrant violation of norms that nobody thought it needed to be a law because for the entire history of our republic, it was accepted as obvious. But the, the level of politicization of the Supreme Court and the other federal courts is, is shocking to legal scholars. But my sense, Anne, is that the Republicans are much more strategic about how they finance as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of activity going on at the grassroots level, taking over school boards and taking over election boards. And in many ways, the strategy is pretty obvious because Steve Bannon has been uh, advocating these strategies. But the financing of it, I mean, my sense is that right-wing plutocrats are willing to write checks and to get it done, whereas left-wing or more centrist plutocrats and big donors... They like the big 
horse races like who to pick for president and all this kind of stuff. They don't seem to focus their money, and they certainly don't have the same money as the right-wing plutocrats, but they don't seem to focus it on grassroots efforts. Is that your observation? Oh, absolutely. And I would even take it beyond that. I think that a lot of the Democratic donors are based in urban areas, especially on the coasts. And they're reflecting their own values, whereas the Republicans are focused on the strategic races that they need to win to take power and the blocks of voters they need. So right now, the the big focus um, is especially on white female suburban voters. They're high propensity voters. They went for Biden and were a decisive factor in Biden's victory over Trump in 2020. And a lot of the school board takeover and the fabricated debate over critical race theory in elementary schools, which doesn't exist, um, a lot of this is targeting these women who are already stressed over COVID and childcare and uh, all of these worries. So that makes them, them very vulnerable to this falsified information and stirring up these emotions. But it has a longer term strategy, I believe. And I've, I've assembled you know, some, some documentation on this. If the school boards on a local level are, are pipelines to local office, at the same time, they're replacing moderate Republicans on the precinct level with a precinct strategy with their extremist candidates, partly because, you know, in, in most terms, school boards and precinct party leaders are, are very small potatoes. Most, most people don't even think of running for them. But then they move them into positions where they can run for office in November have have a have sway in the state legislature. They already have 30 state legislatures that are controlled by Republicans. And if they manipulate the state legislature doctrine adequately in 2024, they can find legal ways where Republican state legislatures can ignore or challenge the electors selected by the actual voters and install their own electors to to uh, vote for the candidate of their choice, regardless of the popular vote. Now, they're not quite there yet, but they have advanced various steps. And um, if, if your listeners want to follow up on this really pressing crisis, um, there's a series of articles in the Washington Spectator. Uh, I've published some there, but the, the independent state doctrine crisis is, is described by my colleague, Jonathan Weiner. And it's something that people should really be concerned about right now. Well, we've seen the rehearsal on the part of Trump and Giuliani and, and some of the lunatics around him and these f- fake <laughs> fake electors that showed up in Arizona and Nevada and in Michigan. Ian, that's the perfect term for it. It's the dress rehearsal. And uh, I know there are many people in the entertainment business in Los Angeles what do you do in a dress rehearsal? You work out, you, you, you tweak the problems, right? And so in their dress rehearsal, they identified where they couldn't quite follow through on the plan. And they have busily set about on a state level, a local level, a precinct level in tweaking those, those breaks in the chain. And if they are not stopped, it will end up with a kind of surprise revelation in 2024 where the election is taken regardless of the actual vote. 
Well, Ann Nelson, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Ann Nelson, who teaches journalism and public affairs at Columbia University. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground and the Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, a New York Times book review, Editor's Choice, and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris. And her latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the sleazy secrets and unsportsmanlike conduct of the NFL that is rife with corruption, sexual harassment, and racism. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Lipside, who's a longtime sports writer and the jock culture correspondent for Tom Dispatch. He was previously a correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning and for NBC Nightly News, as well as a columnist for The New York Times and an ombudsman for ESPN. And his most recent book is his memoir, An Accidental Sports Writer. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Lipside. Thanks, Ian. Glad to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Robert. And the firing of the Miami Dolphins coach, Brian Flores, apparently because the owner, Stephen Ross, of the team, the Dolphins, offered Flores $100,000 for every loss in 2019 as an incentive uh, to help the team get a better draft pick for 2020. And apparently this has also been buttressed by the Cleveland Browns coach who said the same thing happened there as well. But the thrust of the lawsuit from Brian Flores against the NFL is basically about its discrimination against black candidates for coaching and management positions. And at this point, there's only one black coach in the NFL. And of course, we're talking here on Sunday, a week before the Super Bowl. So the NFL's not looking good, is it? Well, America's not looking very good, Ian. I, I think that, you know, this is the sport that, that we deserve. Um, the, the NFL is, um, is America right now. You know, it, it's really hard to sort out the 1619 Project and uh, the discrimination against uh, head coaches, black head coaches in the NFL. This is Trump's. America. Now, to me, uh, the most immediate and interested issue, because, of course, the discrimination against uh, black head coaches has been going on for as long as has been the NFL. But the most interesting thing is if it's true that an owner offered a coach $100,000 to throw games, to tank, as they call it, to tank games. My God, you know, is that not actionable? Uh, if, if not in uh, a major court of law, I, I would think that if um, the NFL had any morals at all, they would immediately have a major investigation. And if it's true 
you know, the guy's got to be dumped. He can't be an owner. Can you imagine uh, what would have happened if uh, there was even the intimation that, say, Brian Flores um, had bet on a game? Uh, you know, I'm not even talking about shaving points or dumping a game, but had bet on a game. My God, the Fuhrer, he'd be out in a minute. He would not have a chance to defend himself. Uh, but here's an owner, one of the 32, most of whom are billionaires, uh, white men in this kind of, um, hey, socialistic if not communistic organization, the NFL, where they all take care and prop up each other, where they're operating on you know, Jim Crow uh, laws. This, this is you know, really amazing. And we also know that you know, nothing is probably going to happen ever since Kaepernick, you know, Four years ago, five, 19, uh, 2016 was when he uh, knelt. <laughs> you know, Trump's here, and and he was the one who never played again. So I I, I think this is um, it's it's a fascinating story. It's uh, America, writ small, and uh, it'll be very interesting what happens. So the the one aspect of it all that also troubles me. 70% uh, of the NFL players are, are black men. And they have really never stood up. They didn't stand up for Kaepernick. And I'm not saying that whites shouldn't have done either, but they have never stood up for Kaepernick. They have never stood up in a really meaningful way for their own black head coaches, which is certainly in their best interests because those coaches would come from their ranks. Uh, it would be them. So they've kind of gone along with that kind of basic the, the selfishness uh, of the artist athlete. I, I think that there are so many interesting things here, which will all be wiped away in a week uh, from the glorious, you know, violence and spectacular of the Super Bowl. Are you going to watch the Super Bowl? Yes. Uh, it's a local team, the Rams, so I'd be a traitor if I didn't. <laughs> and again, I'm speaking with Robert Lipsight, who's a longtime sports writer and jock culture correspondent for Tom Dispatch. He was previously a correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning and for the NBC Nightly News, as well as a columnist of the, for the New York Times and an ombudsman for ESPN. And his most recent book is his memoir, An Accidental Sports Writer. So Flores has said that being asked to throw a game for $100,000 per game by the owner, uh, Stephen Ross, of the Dolphins was an attack on the integrity of the game, and I wouldn't stand for it. I think it hurt my standing with the organization, ultimately, was the reason why I was let go. I mean... <laughs> Let me ask you this, since since we're broadening it out into you started out by saying, you know, this is America. This is America's game. So what's happening to the NFL is also happening to America. The fact that the Republican Party now is invested in cheating rather than competing and that they've rigged the next election so that we'll end up with a one-party state like uh, Hungary, is that therefore 
connected to what our discussion here about the NFL. In other words, the NFL is apparently perfectly happy to condone this kind of cheating to throw games to get better draft picks then it's one and the same, isn't it? The GOP and the NFL. Oh, oh absolutely. I mean, the NFL, you know, you've got your uh, your one-party state right there, or the uh, one party be represented by the owners, most of whom are Republicans, of course, many of whom are Trump supporters. Uh, so, you know, that that's absolutely true. And in terms of, uh, you know, rigging an election, hey, man, rig an election, rig a game, rig a season. Uh, I, I, I think that as, you know, this um, the morality or lack of morality seeps back and forth you know, from Congress to the NFL, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're seeing this terrible uh, miasma where who stands for what? I mean, you know, um, you know, the, the, the word integrity, you know, hey, that's what you believe in. Not necessarily what I believe in, certainly, as we've uh, seen both in the country uh, and and in the game itself. We're fighting for democracy. In in some ways, it seems, you know, um, a little paltry to worry about pro football, and yet, and yet, uh, the values of sport uh, have always been. Um, closely aligned to the values of the country. Sport, and certainly football is now considered the national pastime, you know, sport was the crucible of character. It's where we learn, you know, so much about collective play, about democracy, about standing up for your rights for, and, and sportsmanship. Um, that's all gone now. And uh, it's it's certainly gone in sports if an owner can get away with uh, trying to fix the games. I mean, this is the the fairness of the game was always intrinsic to what sports was about. This was supposedly America's one sure meritocracy, the one place where there were rules, there were umpires and referees, there were places where you had to toe the line honestly or be thrown out. I mean, in golf, you know, you would, if you, you know, if you made a mistake, you would uh, rat yourself out. Uh, you didn't have to wait for somebody else. But I, I, I think that um, that's really all going to hell now. And, yeah. Well, well, Robert, I mean, Donald Trump cheats at golf. <laughs> Pardon me? He, he, he gives himself mulligans all the time. So what? given that you've got these 32 teams, as you mentioned, owned largely all by white men and largely by billionaires, are they just stupid and greedy? Why don't they see what's happened to the NBA where they've let more and more African-Americans into management positions, coaching positions, referee positions, and the NFL is doing fine financially. So this is not going to go away, is it? This is a huge story. And even those panels of jocks that sit there in the football games before and after and during, aren't they going to bring this up or are they going to be, do you think they're just going to be cowards? 
Well, I think that um, they've been, first of all, first of all, um, you know, jocks are, are, are a different species. Uh, certainly from me, maybe from you too, unless you're a jockey. Um, jocks are a different species. They realize that they have a very short shelf life in the, in the a football player is is lucky if his career goes beyond three years. Um, he can be out so easily and so quickly. Um, and I don't think that uh, any kind of principled <laughs> radicalism is is built into that system. Uh, as far as the owners being, as you said, greedy and stupid. Well, they're certainly greedy. There's no doubt about that. I don't know that they're stupid. I think that they've created a system that really works really very well for them. Uh, and until it doesn't, until people and sponsors start, you know, turning away uh, from the way that they're operating their league, they'll continue. And there's really a good reason for them to continue because basically people don't care. I mean, it's it's like the sponsors of the current Olympic Games who are, you know, able to turn a blind eye to the human rights violations and all the oppression that's going on now around the Olympics by the Chinese government. You know, it's business. It's it's money. And the, the biggest example that we have seen in very recent history is the way the NFL tried to um, first obscure and then whitewash the connection between football and serious brain trauma. Uh, For a very long time, they stonewalled that while more and more uh, of of their players were being were being killed. Yeah. Uh, Some of them committed murder, too. Yeah. Yeah. Within that, we often found that there was a a discrimination uh, in the way that black players who suffered brain trauma were being treated. So um, greedy. Yeah. Stupid. Um, I, I don't know how they would think of themselves or could be called stupid as long as they're making money and that their will is prevailing. Uh, is the Republican Party greedy and stupid? Well, they're certainly greedy. Uh, not, well, speaking we of the Republicans, them, uh, they had an argument in this hearing on Thursday before the House Oversight Committee. There was a roundtable hearing and the Republicans were defending the Washington NFL team, now called the Washington Commanders. There were a lot of witnesses, former cheerleaders and others who, in marketing and, and other management positions, women, who talked about the fact that the team owner, Dan Snyder, he may not be stupid, but he's a misogynist and, and a sexual harasser. And the Republicans were trying to defend him and the Democrats were trying to suggest that something has to be done about this internal report that the NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell is sitting on. So will that report ever come out? He's saying he doesn't want to release the report because it threatens the anonymity of more than 100 former staffers who contributed to it. But the report about about sexual harassment and misogyny and racism within the NFL apparently is all there in that report that Goodell is sitting on. 
That's a, that's that's a wonderful example, Ian, uh, because it's it's not just about you know the team that I now call the commies. <laughs> I mean, they uh, that that report is obviously going to cast a far wider net than uh, just Dan Snyder and the Washington football team. I mean, this kind of misogyny, uh, sexual harassment, um, the abuse of cheerleaders um, is is prevalent throughout the National Football League. So it's uh, there's a reason for Goodell to sit on that report because it's not even about uh, Washington. It's not, a, you know, I mean, one would think, hey, by this time, he's such a bad guy. Why don't they throw Dan Snyder under the bus? But he's, he's one of them. Uh, and whatever Whatever he's done, um, probably most of the other owners have done as well. Uh, it's it's a um, some sort of socialistic fascistic system that's working very well for them. They're making money, uh, and you know that it, it's not even just money. Most of these guys who own NFL teams uh, are not depending on the team for their, um, you know, for their bread and butter. They've got other important and large and interconnected businesses. There is, um, you know, there, you know, I, I almost think I'm going to say this, but there, I, I think those owners are in it for the toxic masculinity. They love it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Okay, you you made a billion dollars, you know, maybe, um, you know, making cardboard boxes or whatever it was, but it was trivial compared to the feeling you have walking into a National Football League locker room that you own. And there are all these guys, you know, the guys who, you know, shouldered you in the hallway in high school. And they belong to you now. And you walk into this locker room. I've seen this as a sports writer. You walk into this locker room with maybe a couple of buddies of yours from high school, you know, other nerdy kids. And you just kind of stand there and you look at that meat that belongs to you. I mean, that's the real feeling I used to get. Uh, it's a very uncomfortable feeling. And locker rooms are kind of, you know, crappy places anyway if you're not uh, the owner uh, because you're either you know, the meat that you own or the sports writers known as the green flies at the picnic. Uh, but this is yours. So, I mean, that's a, that's a lot to give up. And I think that the toxic masculinity aspect of it, the misogyny of it, the sexual harassness of it, the idea that um, whatever you may be blamed for what you do to the cheerleaders, in many ways, what you do to the ballplayers is worse because you really do see them as as things that you own, that you can buy, that you can sell. And they may be more famous on the street than you are, but you are in control. And you can ask them to throw games. 
apparently. Uh, you can disregard the fact that their brains, you know, are being beaten into oatmeal uh, because this is your team and you own it. Well, Robert Lipside, I thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Okay, Ian. Thanks for letting me rant. <laughs> enjoyable rant and again I've been speaking with Robert Lipside who's a long time sports writer and a jock culture correspondent for Tom Dispatch he was previously a correspondent for CBS Sunday Morning and NBC Nightly News as well as a columnist for the New York Times and ombudsman for ESPN and his most recent book is his memoir An Accidental Sports Writer this has been Background Briefing I'm Ian Masters and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half